So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And we'll read from verses 44 to the end of the chapter. So it's Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to the end of the chapter. So let's uh, have a look at that now. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, in which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea, and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast away the bad. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth, and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? And they say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, Whence had this man this wisdom? And these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then had this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honour, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today, and it's time now for our sermon, which is related to the first two parables that we read in this passage today. So if you have your Bibles, stay with me in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 to 46, and that will be our focus today. The, the title of today's message is called The Treasure and the Pearl, and so we're going to have a look at that right now, and... I'll open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll have a bit of a read of those two verses again. <clears throat> Father, we thank you once again for this time. We can look into your word, and we pray that you would be our teacher. Father, I pray that you would simply use me, Father, to convey the message that you want for all of us. And I pray that you would give us your understanding and the grace we need to live this particular truth that we learn. We thank you for the church. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for this fellowship that we have in you, that we might continue Lord, to grow into that precious, uh, grow that precious fruit that you have called us to bear. We thank you for this time once again in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the treasure and the pearl. And in Matthew 13, 44, we read again, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, there are some things that aren't value because they're valuable because they can be bought or sold, 
but by how much they are appreciated and celebrated. <clears throat> Things such as your family, uh, a sunset, a pet, uh, a photograph of someone that you may love, the grandeur of a, of a majestic mountain, uh, the flowers maybe in your garden, maybe the pet that you have. Um, these people value, not necessarily because they can be bought, they have monetary value, but because they have intrinsic value to them. Um, those things may bring extra meaning or pleasure or happiness or joy in that person's life. Therefore, they value them. For instance, when you hear of people um, who, for example, if their house is burning down, the thing that they treasure the most is the thing they'll actually go on sale. So they may end up you know, trying to save things such as personal photographs or personal items that link them to their family and people that they love. And they might just save photographs and let the rest of the house burn down. This shows you, for instance, what they value the most. Not, there are a number of things in life that are valuable and have monetary value because they, they can be bought and they can be sold. In most cases, the value is determined by the one, the person who's willing to pay the most for those things and the thing that they're, very, they're chasing. For instance, if you're a coin collector, there are certain coins that are extremely valuable because they are rare. And so someone who may have thousands and thousands of coins is looking for that rare coin to add to their collection. So they value it more highly. One coin may not necessarily be any more beautiful or any more useful or any more valuable in terms of the metal that it has within it, but ultimately is the willingness of the collector you may have thousands of other coins, their willingness to pay something that other people are not willing to pay for that gives the coin its value. It's what someone who was willing to give for something that at the end of the day makes it valuable. And this may include money, but it also includes how much time maybe someone's willing to spend to look after that very thing or how many other things they're willing to sacrifice in order to have that one thing that determines the value of that thing for that person. For instance, how much effort or time and sacrifices parents make for their children. When you look at, if they didn't have any children, what else they'd be doing? When you look at how much they sacrifice and all the attention and time they give to their children, gives you a good idea of how much they value their children. At the end of the day, if no one is willing to give anything or pay anything for something, then what value does it actually have? And so today we're looking at two parables given to us by the Lord about things of great value. The first is a buried treasure. You know, the topic of every great pirate story you may have heard as a child, a buried treasure somewhere that people want to find. When a man finds this treasure, he hides it again. And he sells everything he has simply to buy that plot of land. The other story is about a merchant who finds the greatest pearl he's ever found in his life. And he sells everything he has simply to get his hands on that one pearl because he realizes the value of it. In both cases, the men decided that what they saw was worth more than what they already had. They gave all that they had to get one thing that showed you how much they valued that thing you know this parable that we read or these two parables that we read um begin with the kingdom of heaven is like and that's similar to what we have read in the previous parables in this chapter 
It starts with that very phrase. So most people actually believe, or most people teach, that Jesus was saying that the kingdom of heaven is valuable like a treasure or a pearl. Seems to make sense. So most preachers and commentators teach or preach that the pearl represents something like salvation or the acquisition of the kingdom of heaven and that the buyer then is the lost sinner who is finding that thing that precious thing which is jesus or salvation or the kingdom of heaven and acquires it for themselves the sinner sees the value of heaven and does all that he can to obtain salvation and they work and pay any price in order to be saved there's a theologian called john noland and i don't know him at all but he came up in in my research and he's and i'm just using him as an example um and he comments the parable speaks of the notions of good fortune and demanding action in attaining the kingdom of heaven so it demands action on our part that we'd be willing to sell everything we have to attain heaven but adds in this case a notion of diligently seeking so he's talking about also that a Christian should be seeking the kingdom of heaven, like that man who was looking for that buried treasure, or that merchant who was looking for the best pearl that he could find. He goes on to say that the valuable pearl is the deal of a lifetime for the merchant in the story. However, he says those who do not believe in the kingdom of heaven enough to stake their whole future are unworthy of the kingdom. So he's saying that there are some people who don't see heaven as important enough, so they don't sell, aren't willing to sell everything they have to buy that one thing. So this is almost a universal description of this passage. By far, it's probably the most um, popular uh, interpretation of this parable by theologians and pastors and, and priests and whoever else there is out there. Heaven itself or salvation or Christ is the treasure or the pearl. We are the merchant who must sell everything we have in order to acquire the precious item. It makes us the seeker, the person who does the valuing. It makes what we own or have valuable enough to purchase that one precious thing. It therefore makes Christ and heaven the self and salvation our possession. Um, as I say at NASA, at Houston, we have a problem. Yes, I have a problem with this interpretation on a number of levels. And, be, and believe that the true context of this parable is something altogether different. Problem number one. For starters... The interpretation implies that we were somehow able to purchase salvation for ourselves with what we already have of value. You see, the, both the person who was looking for the pearl sold everything he had and was able to buy the pearl. The man who found the treasure sold everything he had to buy the whole field. Somehow it gives us the impression here that as sinners we're able to go and buy something like salvation or christ with what we already have of value well that's a problem um how do you buy something of immense value when you have really nothing to give what do i have to give that is of any worth in order to obtain salvation 
and possess Christ? Well, really, if you look at it and what the Bible teaches, nothing. The scripture is clear about this very thing, that I am a sinner in need of, and of salvation and desperately in need of it. There is nothing good in me, that there is nothing of value that I can offer to buy this thing, which is so precious. There's nothing that I can offer for my soul that would satisfy the holiness and righteousness of God. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Does that sound as if we have the something of value in order to be able to purchase something as precious as salvation, heaven or Christ, even if I gave up everything that I have, really do I have enough to buy something like that? Well, no, it doesn't seem like that to me. And it doesn't seem as if scripture is teaching that at all. Which then brings me to another problem. The interpretation seems to make man the seeker. So that Man is the merchant who, who knows the value of pearls, who is such an expert at them, that when he sees the pearl, he automatically acquires it. And it makes us the people who go digging, looking for this precious buried treasure, which is Jesus. So people are out there looking for buried treasure. Does this really sound like something men do from a spiritual perspective? Well, not at all. Once again, this interpretation is inconsistent with, with the, one of the most clear truths taught in the Bible. That man is, uh, or that unregenerate man does not seek after God. It is God who seeks after him. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth the value of a pearl. And there is none that seeketh after God, it says. None. Well, that would put this interpretation then of this passage in a clear contradiction with what the Bible teaches. Another problem, and the third problem of this interpretation is that it also conf conflicts with the rest of the parables in the same chapter in Matthew. Where instead of instead of putting Jesus at the at the central point, it puts man in the central position as the one who is in control, the one who is looking for things. Let's quickly look at these uh, other parables. These other two or three parables that we've already looked at, just to remind ourselves as to who's who in these particular parables. Turn back just to Matthew chapter thirteen, verse three and four. I won't read the whole parable for just to save us time. But you'll remember, it says, And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some feeds, uh, seed, seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And you'll remember that he sowed some on stony ground, and some on, on, uh, on thorny ground, and some on good soil. Who was the sower in this uh, in parable? It was Christ. What is he sowing? Well, he's sowing the word of God to the souls of men. Let's go to another one. Turn forward to verse 24. He says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like un likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. 
once again. Who is the man? The man is Christ. What is he sowing? In this particular case, he's sowing people. He is sowing believers. He was planting people in his field. The good seed were the people that were saved. The bad seed, the people that were unsaved, which are then separated in the end. So who's the person doing stuff? It's the man, and it's Jesus. The people in this case are either seeds, or the word of God and people receiving seed. Turn forward to verse 37, because it gives us the explanation here. And it says, And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Now, look at verse 31. Go back for a sec to verse 31, because you'll remember this one too. It says, There another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Who is the man in this particular parable? Once again, Christ, Jesus. What did he plant? He planted the kingdom of heaven. The field here is the church. In the parable directly after the parable of the parables of the um, the treasure and the um, and the pearl is the parable of the dragnet of the the people who put the net in. So you'll notice it says in verse forty-seven and forty-eight, it says again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast about away. So in this case, the fish are people. And it is the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, that, that of Christ that actually draws the net out and actually brings it in. In all of these parables, all of them, the man is depicted as the one taking action and the man is directly a picture of the Lord, never people. The people are de depicted as seed, as soil, and fish. Did those make up their minds to go chasing after the, the soil and the net and, and, and everything else? No. Did any of these have the ability to do the work of salvation? No. Did the seed, the seed call to be sown or sow itself? No. Did the fish choose to be caught in the net because they thought it'd be a better thing to do? No. In all of these things, people are the ones being affected by the gospel, being saved by the Lord and being given heaven, not because they earned it or chased it or sold something and traded something in order to get it. So let's turn to our two parables again of the treasure and the pearl. Who is it that's in them? Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. The merchant looking for good pearls is the one who is doing the looking and the finding. It is that person who knows what he's looking for. This person is an expert. And he is the one who places value on what he finds. The treasure, in this case, is hidden and needs a great deal of patience to find, a great amount of work to dig it out, and a great amount of effort to save. 
this man which hideth the treasure in the field and finds it, buys the whole field, can't be man. What have we to exchange for the field? What have we of value to give for the pearl? Instead, it is the Lord that finds us. It is the Lord that, that digs us out of the ground. We were the ones who were buried under the dirt, living in darkness. It is the Lord that found us and gave us everything he had to purchase us once again. Jesus came from heaven to the field of this world in order to redeem us. We were buried and dead in a coffin in darkness until he came and saved us. What a beautiful description this man is of Jesus Christ, the seeker and the finder, the one who gave all that he had and the one who redeemed us as things that were precious to himself. You'll, you'll know this verse because Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. What was lost? We were. To him, we were the treasure. And he came looking for us. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus, our Lord, came to seek and save us. The treasure that was buried. A treasure not because there is an inherent intrinsic value in us. No, because he is the one who said, I'm going to bestow my love upon them. The lesson in here for us is how much God actually values us. Not because there was any good in us, but because he chose to love us. That's the nature of God. That's the nature of his type of love. Now the question for us as believers, for those of us who have accepted the Lord and received him as our saviour and king, is will we value those people who are not saved the same way that he does? Because the Bible says that he now sends us to seek those who would be saved because they are precious to him. We have his spirit working within us, working through us to seek and save the lost. You see, Jesus hasn't stopped seeking and saving the lost. Just because he's gone back to heaven, he hasn't stopped doing that. But he does it now through us. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, he told his disciples, he says, Go there, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Our task as believers is to witness Christ to all the world, beginning from where we are, to bring those who will accept the gospel into his church. But will we treasure mankind as he does? Do we treasure the lost as he has treasured the lost? It's a question that only we can answer. And maybe we go up and down like a bit of a yo-yo. But our, our commitment to that, our love for them, should be consistent with his love for them. Let's go to the next point. Why did he go and hide the treasure again? You'll notice that it says in this particular parable of the treasure, it says that he finds the treasure, 
and then he buries it again. So he can go away, sell all that he has, buys that field. Why did he, how is this related to us? Well, the Bible says that we are hidden now in a slightly different way because he wants to keep us safe from the clutches of our old slave master, the old owner, who is the devil. The Bible says that we are hidden in Christ until the day when he comes to take possession of us out of this world. We are hidden at this particular time in him. But there will come a day when Jesus takes full possession of the treasure, which is us, and he takes possession of the entire field, which is the earth, and everyone that is saved by him. <clears throat> Until then, have a listen to the way Scripture describes us in terms of this thing that is hidden. I've got a three passages for you I'd like to share with you today. Col Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you turn with me just for a moment there, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to read to verse 4, and I want you to take note of how it refers to us, okay? Colossians 3, 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. That's where our home is now. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Look at verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. There's going to come a day. We are hidden in Christ at the moment. Hidden. He has decided to hide us again. Okay. But there's going to come a day when he shall appear, when we will also appear with him in glory. That's when he comes to take possession of us. That's when the man, the merchant, who actually goes back, buys the field, takes possession of the field, and digs the treasure back up again. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Look at the apostle uh, Peter, what he says about us here again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's amazing stuff. That's just, that's just uh, so encouraging when you read those words. But look at verse 5. Who, that's us, are kept by the power of God through faith, that simple belief in him unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That is when he comes to take us home to be with him. We are only ready to be revealed in the last time, not now. So that's why the, the Apostle John actually says that beloved in, in 1 John 3, 2, he says, beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the Apostle John says it doesn't yet appear what we are to be. Just like that treasure that is still in the box, that is still being uh, concealed, the difference now is that we are being concealed in him. He has already bought us. He's, bought, he's got the field. Now he's got to come and take possession and get us out. At the moment, if you're a believer, the Bible says you are hid in Christ. And there's going to come a day when 
exactly who you are will be revealed, not just to yourself, but to everyone in the world, just the same as Jesus will be revealed in the world. That's an amazing picture of what salvation is about. But let's continue with the pearl now. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 and 46, this is the, the parable of the pearl again. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know, pearls are much like hidden treasure when you think about it. You know, the treasure was in a box, probably buried under the ground. Um, the difference with a pearl is that it's buried underwater in a hard shell rather than the earth. Let's look at some aspects of pearls which may point to what happens to us when we get saved. The first thing I want you to take note of is that a pearl is a hidden work. And the pearl grows hidden inside the oyster under the water where no one can see what's happening. In a similar fashion, Paul tells us in Ephesians that the church was a mystery, something that was hidden from the foundation of the world. This is the mystery in that what God is doing within us now is something that's hidden to the rest of the world. God is working in you in a way that no one else can actually see. The angels can probably see what's happening to us from a spiritual point of view, but we can't often even see it ourselves. And, and the, the, the people around us can't see it. We just look like normal people. So in a sense, the Bible says that we are hidden in that way. But that means that the whole of the church is really hidden. You see, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Even the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints. The mystery is the church. In verse 27, it says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. That's the amazing truth that the world can't see, that Christ is in us. And we, because Christ is in us, we have the hope of glory. You know, as in a buried treasure, the glorified church is still hidden from the eyes of the world. But you know what's happening? It's hidden in the world but god is working in the hearts in the lives and in the souls of people that are saved in a way that will be revealed finally when that oyster is opened up and taken out of the sea no one can actually see the growth of the lord's church they they can see the visible church they might see the local church they might see a building but not the invisible not what God is actually doing in the heart. It is a matter of the heart of a new creature that God plants, a new nature that God plants within us when we're saved, that is really what's going on and is really what will be revealed in the end. So a pearl is formed in a hidden place, in a place where no one can see. And if you look at it, the pearl is really the result of suffering. Yeah, a pearl grows and changes within the confines of that little shell. Though it's buried underwater, 
the pearl is transformed into a thing of beauty. But the process really is one of suffering when you think of it. How does a pearl form in some oysters, but not others? Well, a pearl is formed when an oyster gets a grain of sand, well, some other type of foreign object, trapped inside of it, in its soft flesh. And that's called the mantle within, within the shell. The piece of sand irritates the actual um, oyster inside the actual shell. So it begins to scratch. And the oyster is not very happy about that thing being there. So what ends up happening is it responds by coating the grain of sand with a layer and then another layer and then another layer of a substance called nacre, which is basically calcium and saliva. Okay, It is the same substance that coats the inside of an oyster's shell to make it really smooth and shiny. And so what's really happening is that foreign object, that sand, that irritant, that thing which is, which is scratching and causing pain or causing suffering actually gets coated with this stuff that makes it look absolutely beautiful. And so when you look at it, it's almost a picture of us. So Romans 8.18 says, For I reckon, this is the Apostle Paul, says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Yeah. Paul says, I reckon the sufferings that we're going through at the moment are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. You know, look at what Paul says here, that the sufferings that we endure here are nothing to be compared. And even all of creation is waiting for the day when we will be revealed. It's waiting for that. It's anticipating that. Because when that happens, creation itself will already will also be relieved. We'll also have a burden lifted. We'll also be freed again. In fact, the Bible tells us, and Paul guarantees, that we're going to be going through suffering anyway and persecution for everyone who believes in Christ. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the Apostle Paul says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, hang on a sec. All right, so we're going to suffer we're going to um, uh, we're going to be be like this particular uh, oyster, and the the formation of this pearl is a picture of the way God is working in our lives. But it's a wonderful picture of grace, specifically. Even inside the shell, a grain of sand is coated with a product which makes it white and beautiful to behold, and this is a picture of God's grace. You know, when, when there is sin in our lives, when there, is, when there are problems and manifestations or temptations or persecutions or trials or sufferings, you know what God gives us to cope that, to make it beautiful? It's his grace. And he keeps on giving us his grace in order for us to overcome all trials and sufferings and obstacles and persecutions and sin. Layer after layer after layer, God's transforming grace in our lives makes us something beautiful to behold. And the suffering actually is the catalyst for that. It's when we come up against an obstacle, 
when we endure suffering, when we suffer persecution and trials and other things like that, when we say, God, I need your help here, God coats us with another layer of grace that covers either the sin, covers the persecution, the suffering, the pain. And you know what ends up happening with all of that? The more layers he puts on, the bigger the pearl actually gets, the more beautiful it gets, the more shiny it gets. And Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So whether it's sin that you need God's grace to help you overcome, whether it's persecution because you, you put your faith in Jesus, whether it's suffering that you're going through, whether it's trial, you know what? The Bible tells us that His grace is all sufficient for us. And in the end, the result of that grace will be revealed when God finally reveals who we are because God's grace is meant to transform our lives. Yes, we may come up against obstacles and trials and, and persecutions and sin and, and things that we find hard, but you know what? The result of God's grace in our lives may not be revealed right now, although we're going to start seeing, we see the effects of it now, but in the end, it will be revealed exactly what that grace has done to us. And the Bible says that we'll be revealed and we'll be something glorious and beautiful. Which brings us to my next point about a pearl. It reflects light. You know, one of the astounding qualities of a pearl is its ability to reflect light. The luster of a pearl, or the lack thereof, actually affects its value. And the church is like that. The church has a luster that reflects the light of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. We are meant to be shiny. We are meant to reflect that light. We are meant to be a city on a hill, which is his light shining through us. That's why Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 says that ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So who gets the glory when we do good stuff? When we, when we follow him and we obey him and we live according to the word of God? Well, he gets the glory. And they see the grace of God in our lives. We reflect his glory. And to keep in mind, these aren't really our works anyway. The Bible says that God has preordained those works that we should walk in them. And it's the spirit that energizes us for the task, the spirit that leads us in the task. And we simply have to walk. And when you think about it, the pearl and its rarity, the pearl and its ability to to reflect light, the pearl um, as, a, as, a, as a thing of suffering that creates something beautiful um, means that the pearl is a very valuable object to the man who is seeking the pearl. You know, pearls can be worth a fortune. Scientists say that one natural pearl can be found in pretty much every 10,000 oysters. That's why a string of pearls can be worth a million dollars or more. The church to God is very valuable because he chose to love us. He saw what's in us. He's created us. 
and he's paid such a high price for us. You see, what makes us so valuable is that God has bestowed a value upon us. And what's that value? The value of his only begotten son. That God sent his son into the world because he loves the world and that he might save us. Why would he pay such a high price? Because he chose to love us. For God so loved the world. He chose to love us. He put a value on us. And he sent his son and, and, and did so much, even to the point of dying on a, on, a, on a rugged cross for us. That's the value that God puts on us. Is there anything more precious to the Lord than his bride? Ephesians 2.4 says, But God who was rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, even when we were buried under the ground, even when no one appreciated who we were, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And that's why whenever I have a, um, I perform a wedding ceremony, I normally go to this specific passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, because it says there in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, it says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So that's how much Christ loved us. He loved the church so much that he gave himself for it. That's the price. That's the value that God has put upon us. In verse 26, so what's the purpose of that? That he might sanctify, that means take it to himself, just like the person who bought the field with the buried treasure, just like the, the merchant who went looking for that pearl, he acquired it for himself, that he might cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. There's your pearl being covered and being made beautiful, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's the work of God in our lives. How valuable are you to the Lord when you consider? And please consider, please meditate on what he has done for you and how much he loves you. How precious is the church to the Lord? Do we place the same value on us, on our church, on believers as he does? And how does it affect our walk when we cheapen our view of ourselves in the church? Well, ultimately, if you have a low opinion of the church and what value God has placed on you, if you think yourself to be rubbish or garbage or, to, or, or say there's nothing good in you now, then ultimately what that does is it will lead you into sin. If you don't see yourself as God sees you, if you see yourself just as any other person in the world, as you, if you see yourself as any other sinner, then you will eventually keep on going that way. But if you treasure your brothers and sisters in the Lord and yourself and see yourself the same way God sees you and understand that he paid an, an enormous price for you, then you will treat yourself and what i'm saying here is not that you think yourself more highly or more special than anyone else what i'm saying to you is if someone brought something really expensive for me and said i'm buying this for you as a gift and i know that they spent a lot of money on that thing 
so that it might be a benefit or a blessing to me. I am not going to be haphazard with that thing. I'm not going to treat it and throw it in a corner. I'm going to look after it. I'm going to take care of it because it's valuable and that gift is still valuable to that person. What would I be saying to that person if the gift they gave me, I managed just to throw in the middle of the street? Let's say someone gave me a, a really expensive watch, for instance, and they went all out of their way and they bought this watch and then I just, I just threw it on the ground. What would it say about what that person wanted to do for me? What would it say about my attitude toward them? Well, it wouldn't say very much, would it? And this is what I'm talking about. If we don't value what God values, which includes ourselves and the church, if we don't treasure what God treasures, then it will ultimately lead us to sin. And once again, I'm not talking about pride here. I'm not saying that we're more special. But the fact that Christ died for us should tell us how special we are to God. If we treat, if we just go and sin, if we go and do things that aren't pleasing to God, we're taking the very gift that he's given to us and we're throwing it in the dirt. Please consider how precious you are to God. Do not squander and throw away the grace that God has given you. It is ultimately the devil who wants you to have a cheaper view of the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and yourself. Because he knows the moment he gets you thinking that other Christians are just the same as everyone else in the world, or he gets you focused on every fault and problem that other Christians have, rather than seeing them as your as the redeemed of Christ and the pearl that he that he paid for, that's the moment that you start sinning toward them and toward yourself. And you start dishonoring what Christ has actually done on the cross. Because in the end, the Bible says that the bride of Christ, after all the work that he's done, and all that grace that covers all the troubles and sufferings and pain and sin that we're going through. Yes, all even our own problems and our own sin. He keeps on covering it and making it more and more beautiful will be revealed in the end. And this is really the thing we should stay focused upon. The treasure still may be hidden in the ground. The pearl still may not be fully taken uh, in possession. But you know what? There's going to come a day when everything will be revealed. And it doesn't mean that, oh, you know, I was perfect. No. What it shows, what it's going to reveal is God's glory and the love, the love, the patience, the grace, the mercy that he had for us. We are a product of his amazing character. Is it any wonder when you think about these two parables, the one of a treasure and the one of the pearl, is it any wonder that when the Lord describes the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, it calls the new Jerusalem his holy bride. It describes the new Jerusalem as being made from precious jewels and having doors made from huge single pearls. The treasure and the pearl will be redeemed 
opened up, revealed for everyone to see, and glorified in the, in the earth. Turn with me as we just wrap this up to Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Revelation 21, verse 9. I just want to read for you what the Lord says about this end, this final revelation when Jesus comes and reveals us as the bride of Christ. Revelation 21, 9 says, And he came unto me, one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and, and had a wall great and high and had 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, and 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was as jasper. And the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of a city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysosphorus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. Now look at this. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it was transparent gold. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. What a picture of this treasure, of this pearl that God has redeemed, that Jesus gave us in a parable. What's it speaking of here? Who is this amazing picture of? It's a picture of you. If you're a believer in Christ, if you are a believer, you are part of the bride of Christ, which will one day be revealed. This is a picture of you in all of your glory. And this is what Christ has done for us. The church is loved greatly by God himself, not because there was anything intrinsically good or beautiful in us, but because he chose to love us. He was the one who chose to pay the high price for us. The value of us is determined by what he paid. And that was the shedding of his own blood, the giving of his own son. Because the church is valuable to the Lord, because this picture is of the church, a glorified church, we must treat the church now in the same way. 
It is worth our prayers. It is worth our giving. It is worth our work, our sacrifices. The church is precious to the Lord. And that means you as well. Regard yourself as such and walk in holiness, godliness, dignity. Walk as Christ walks. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the scripture of what of what the description of what Christ has done for us? He sought us, he found us, he gave all for us. And what's beautiful about his parables is it makes us the object of great value in God's eyes. We are the treasure in the field. We are the pearl of great price. I don't have to give up everything I have because I have nothing to give. He gave me salvation as a gift because I couldn't purchase it for myself. We are the ones whom the Lord has determined are worth all the costs. That's why we are exhorted in the scripture to think about this when we live our lives. In, I'll leave this with this one final passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He says, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. It's the blood of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Don't you understand? God lives in you today. You may not see that on the outside, but God already sees it within you. It is the Lord who has bought us, loved us, and owns us. Not the other way around. It is God who was willing to pay the price to redeem his church. We love him, the Bible says, because he first loved us. My friend, in God's eyes, you are a precious pearl. In God's eyes, you are a treasure. He has already given all for you. He's already paid the price. How will you respond if you haven't received Jesus as your saviour yet? Receive him because he gave everything for you. The love that he showed toward you is something we can't even measure or even imagine. Will you not receive that love? Where will you find a greater love than that in your life? And if there's anything you need in your life, if there's anything you need, that gives you meaning, it's love. And it's the love of God, which is greater than every other love that you can ever have in this world. If you have his love, if you understand his love, if you're willing to receive his love, then your life cannot ever be the same. You will be joined to the bride of Christ. You will be joined to his church and he is looking forward to that day when he will come and reveal in us this amazing thing that he's done. Will you shine and glow for his glory today? This is what we have been called to. God bless you all. I hope you have an awesome week. Thank you once again uh, for joining us today. I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you and will continue to work in your life. And if you're not saved, if you're not sure, please contact us here at Faith Baptist Church. We'd be more than happy and willing to share that amazing news of the gospel with you once again. God bless you.